And this year we're going to go through the 27th Psalm. So that's how many more Psalms we have this time. And then we'll move on to the other direction. Gordon, is your daughter, what is she doing in Houston? What are you doing here? I'm an accountant. An accountant, okay. Now, uh, Katie's mom, Olivia Elmore, is the headmaster at First Baptist Academy in Houston. I just thought maybe you needed a job and you got laid off. <laughs> I'll put a word in it. Okay. So anyway, we're in Psalm 22 right now. And uh, when you look at that, immediately your eyes fall on the first verse. And it opens up with this familiar cry uh, from the cross, which is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which means that when Jesus was crucified, he had these words, he had this psalm on his mind. When he was crucified, he thought of this psalm right here. Uh, but before Jesus ever applied these words to his own circumstance, these words were applied uh, to King David. And so what I want to do is I want to look at the psalm from the perspective of King David instead of the perspective of Jesus. Now, as we go through these, this psalm, you will apply it on your own to Jesus as he's hanging from the cross. But that's not how, that's not the original context. The original context is David applied this to his life. Now, you'll notice there's a superscription over top that psalm, and it says, To the chief musician, set to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. Now, so what do we learn about this? Well, we learn that this is a song that David wrote about an event in his life. He passes these words on to a musician. He wants them set to music. Now, in my Bible, which I'm using in New King James, it says, A deer set to the deer of the dawn. But if you have an old King James, what does it say? You can't even read that, can you? Yeah. That's Hebrew. Hebrew language. And it says, Ageleth uh, Sheshar. Uh, which no one knows what it means, really. Uh, they think, well, maybe it means set to the tune of that Hebrew music. Or maybe that's an instrument. But the New King James says, The deer or the gazelle of the dawn. And perhaps... For David, this means this is a psalm that's going to be sung during the morning. It's a morning psalm. When the deer gets up and grazes out in the field. Or, it could be when the deer gets up and the hunter's there hunting for the deer. And maybe that's what David is, says this psalm is about. He himself is like a deer that's being hunted down by his enemies. And so... Whether it's talking about playing it on a certain music instrument or playing it on a certain tune or whether it's playing it in the morning, uh, we're just not certain of that. But I'm going to show you some interesting features about the psalm. Now, there's 31 verses, and that's a lot. So how can we get through this in 30 minutes? Well, I think we can do it if I show you, first of all, how this psalm is laid out, the structure of the psalm. And the first thing I want you to notice are the contrasts in this psalm. Uh, there's a contrast between me, my, I, talking about himself personally, and you or thou talking about God. For example, in starting in verse 1, David talks about himself. My, look, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning. You see how he does that? It's about David. That's the me, my, I section. Then look at verse 3. How does that start off? But you. You see that? And so verses 3 through 5 talk about God. And then you have a switch back. Look at verse 6. But what? I, 
and that goes 6, 7, and 8, and then it switches back. And look at verse 8 through verse 9. What does it say? But you, see how it switches back and forth, making a contrast between his situation and God. And then verse 12, look at this. The bulls have surrounded what? Me. The bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gave it me. See that? So that's the me section. Verse 14 says, I. Look at verse 15. My. See all this. And that goes all the way down to verse 18. And then beginning in verse 19, what does it say? But you. So there is the, uh, there is the layout. So verses 1 through 21 have this contrast between me and you. Between David and God. Okay? And in those 21 verses, David lays out the desperate situation that he's in. And we'll look at those verses in a minute. Then in verse, at the end of verse 21, you have this sentence. You have answered me. And that's a pivot point. The entire psalm turns on an axis in 21b. And it just makes an entire switch from David being desperate, saying, My God, my God, why have you what? And then suddenly, in verse 21, look what happens. He just turns on this pivot, and suddenly he says, You answered and then from that point on, it's all about how God's answered. And so that's what we call the pivot point in a passage. And when I'm teaching a class on preaching, I'm always teaching my students, when you take a passage, you're hunting for certain, uh, what we call literary uh, devices. And right here in verses 121 through 21, you see a literary device of contrast and comparison. But then in verse 21, you see what's called a pivot point. And the whole psalm swings on that end. And when it does, suddenly it all becomes clear to you. Then, the final section is verses 22 through 31, where David now, because the prayer has been answered, he begins to praise God, thanks God for his deliverance, and calls upon Israel to join him in that. Now, with that understanding of how it's laid out, we can go through these 30 verses or so very quickly. So let's look at verse 1, David's desperation. Notice how deep his desperation is. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning. Notice that groaning. This means that David is in agony. This, he is in a state of desperation here. And God's forsaken him. He says, oh my God, in verse 2, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear and in the night season, and I am not silent. So here we see that David is in a desperate strait. He doesn't know what to do because he's been trusting God. He cries out to God. He says, I need help. And guess what? Heaven is silent. And so this is David's desperate condition. Now in verse 3, you have the first contrast. Look what it says in verse 3. But you are holy. Now if God is holy, what does that mean? God's not answering, that means He's not answering for a reason. His reason is righteous and it's holy. David recognizes this. He says, but you, God, you're holy. Uh, you are enthroned in the praises of Israel. So notice in verse 3 how he describes God. First he says, God's righteous, you're holy. And then he recognizes that God's a king. God is enthroned. He recognizes that, hey, I'm a king, but guess what? You're a king. And 
David's a king over who? Who's God a king over? The praises of who? Do the nations praise God? Do the Gentile Hittites say, God, oh, praise you, Yahweh? Do they do that? No. They don't recognize God as king. Only Israel recognizes God as king. So David is their king, but God is a king. And he also acknowledges God's past intervention in the nation of Israel. Look at verse 4. He said, our fathers trusted you. Do you see that past tense, E-D on the end there? In the past, our fathers trusted you. Look at this. They trusted you, and you did what? You delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. In other words, God, in the past you've always come through, and now I'm in this situation, and guess what you've done to me? Forsaken me. What's going on? In the past, whenever our forefathers cried out to you and trusted you, you came through. And at the end of verse 5 it says, and they were not ashamed. They always knew that God was going to come through, and guess what? He came through, and they were never, he never left them in a lurch. They were never embarrassed in front of their enemies, where the enemies said, ha, well, he's God, he sure didn't come through, did he? He never left them in that kind of a situation. But here's David, see? So now we come to the next contrast. Look at verse 6. But I am what? I'm a worm. I'm a no man. I'm a nothing. I'm a nobody different than Joe Olstein. <laughs> I remember Jesse Jackson back in the 1970s, and uh, he was up in Chicago, and he had a little chant, an affirmation. It was, say with me now, I am, go on, somebody. Jesus says, I am nobody. I'm a worm. That must be, Lord, how you look at me, because you, you've forsaken me, and I'm not even... How many worms do you look at when you walk? Don't look at worms. See? And I must be like a worm guy. You're not even paying. I'm crying out to you and you've forsaken me. I'm, I'm like a worm, see? And uh, then he goes on and he says this. A reproach of men, in verse 6, and despised uh, of the people. I'm a reproach. Hey, when our forefathers prayed, you never left them embarrassed. But guess what I am? I'm, always, I'm embarrassed. You're, I'm a reproach. He's been reduced to scorn. People ridicule him. Uh, think of Saturday Night Live. What do they do on Saturday Night Live? They ridicule. They scorn people. Remember Sarah Palin's interview with Katie Kirk? Next Saturday night, guess what? They, they try to embarrass her. David says, hey, you're embarrassing me. I'm, I'm proclaiming you to be the God who delivers. And guess what? You haven't come through. See, I'm like a uh, being parodied on Saturday Night Live. And then look what he says in verse 7. All those who see me, what? Ridicule me. I'm humiliated. They shoot the lip. <laughs> they shake the head. They say, ha, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But guess what? God doesn't deliver. So he's left embarrassed. Uh, left to be ridiculed because God basically hasn't come through. God has forsaken him. Now we see the next contrast. Look at verse 9. But you are he who took me out of my mother's womb. I'm a little confused now. Wait a second. 
I remember, guys, you took me out of my mother's womb. What's going on? Why are you forsaking me now? See how he's thinking? You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. What's he saying? He said, what's going on here? Before I was born, my mother dedicated me to you, and I've trusted you from the... My mother taught me about you when I was on her knee, and I grew breast, and she sang about you, and... What's going on here? I've trusted you all my life, and now you're leaving me in this lurch. You see? So David is uh, very frustrated. He doesn't know what's going on. That's why his first question up in verse 1 is, why? Not just that God's forsaken me, but he wants to know, why? what's going on here? Why? why have you done this to me? I've been faithful to you all my life. Look at verse 1. Be not, be not far from me. Now, right here, I have in my Bible, I wrote down, wrote down in my Bible this morning, is David's first prayer. This is actually a prayer he says to God. This is the first prayer to God. God, don't be far from me. That's his first request. Now, why doesn't he want God to be far from him? Because trouble is what? See that contrast between you and far? Don't be far from me. Uh, what did he say back in verse 1? My God, my God, why are you, have you forsaken me? Why are you so what? Why are you so far from me? Now that he hear his first prayer. God, don't be so far from me. Why? Look what it says in verse 11. Because trouble is near. For there is none to help. In other words, God, if... Uh, notice that word for. This is the reason why he prays. Don't be far from me. Because... Trouble is near. And there's a second reason he prays this prayer. Because guess what? If you don't help, no one else is going to help. There's no one else to help me. I'm in a predicament here and I can't get out of this predicament. Okay? Now, what's the problem? Okay? Look what he says. We're going to go back to this contrast. Now he's going to talk about himself. Number one, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Now, here we see the problem. What is the problem? The problem is that David is encircled. He's surrounded by his enemies. And these enemies are the Gentile nations. They're ready to come in. Have we seen this before? Most of the Psalms are like this, aren't they, so far? The nations have surrounded David, and they're like bulls, ready to pounce. You've been to Mesquite Rodeo or the Houston Rodeo, and you know what it's like if you get in the way of a bull. Or the Matadors. Many of the Matadors have been gored lately. I don't know if you saw that one on Drudge or one of those uh, websites, Fox, of this bull actually had gored a Matador under his... Matt, who saw this? And we'll see. Sort of ugly, wasn't it? And the horn came right out of his neck. One of the leading matadors in Spain. So when he talks about bulls, he's talking about something that's going to kill you if it gets a chance. And he likens the Gentile nations, these enemies, to bulls that have surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And they're ready to come in for the kill. So he describes his enemies in the terms of a beast. 
And David himself is only a man, so how can he fight this beastly enemy that's going to come against him? And then look at verse 13. He says, they gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. Now he describes his enemies as lions that are ready to just come in and sneak up and Get that correct. So again, notice he describes his enemies in terms of a beast. And of course, that roaring lion is the word, same words that Peter uses when he says Satan's like a roaring lion. So we know that the power behind the enemy is Satan. And then look at verses 14 and 15. He says, here's my condition. I am poured out like water. I'm expended. There's nothing left. If you just pour all of the water out and you're in a desert and say, hey, I need a drink. He's gone. He's done everything he can. He's poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. What in the world does that mean? It means it's weak. It's melted within me. He just, he just faint-hearted. He just doesn't even have the strength to take another step. And he looks at the situation, and he is his heart is just melted. He looks at all the enemies surrounding the city, and he goes, "Nothing that we can do." So that's what he's describing right here. He says, "My strength is dried up like a potsherd." Verse fifteen, my tongue clings to my Jaws. He's describing a state of helplessness. And then look what he says right there at the end of verse 15. You have brought me to the dust of death. Guess what he's got? He's charged with God. Don't ever want to say that. <laughs> he says, you're responsible for that. You brought me right to the point of death. Next thing I want to see is the dust. I guess that's where worms go. And then, so he blames God for this. Charges God. He said, this is, this is what you brought me to. I was faithful to you from my mother's womb, and this is what you're bringing me to. So this is a charge against God. And he sees that this is his fate. This is in inevitable. And then he tells us why he's brought to the point of death. Look what he says in verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me. You see that word surrounded again? He's describing Gentile nations. The Gentiles are described as dogs. And he says, there they, they've surrounded me. The whole city of Jerusalem is now surrounded. And uh, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They're enclosing in on me. I mean, the next day, this whole city is going to fall uh, to the enemy. Uh, they have pierced my hands and my feet, too. The dogs. The dogs. See, if he's to the point of the death, what happens when a pack of dogs come in? And they realize that you're helpless and you can't even move. And you're spent. They start going, <laughs> they pierce your skin. They start ripping your skin apart. Uh, so Jesus, when he talks about being pierced, he uses the word pierced that they crucified. Guess how they would do that? Half dogs coming in and ripping, biting, piercing his skin. And here he is, he sees himself in his mind's eye. Is helpless and the dogs are gnawing on his body. It's a very graphic picture. He says, I count all my bones. Dogs like bones, don't they? They look, they look, and they stare at me. But these aren't these aren't real dogs. What is he talking about? Humans, right? 
He's not talking about lions. He's not talking about bulls. He's not talking about dogs. He's talking about human enemies. He's saying they're like bulls. They're like lions. They're like dogs. And he says, they look at me in verse 17. And then look what they do in verse 18. They divide my garments amongst themselves. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Now think about Jesus as he's on the cross and all these things are happening. But in the original context, it's happening to David. And so David sees himself as having been now been defeated in his mind eye. His mind eye, he sees that he's been defeated. And guess what? To the victor goes the Now he's just dividing everything up in the ovens. David owns an awful lot, and uh, they're just going to divide it all up. So then he says this. We have the next contrast. Verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. Now here is his second prayer, and it's exactly the same prayer that he prays in verse 11. Don't be far from me. David realizes in his mind's eye he's finished. Therefore, he cries out a second time, don't be far from me. Look at verse 19. Oh, my strength, here's what I need you to do. Come quickly, hasten to help me. Deliver, deliver me from the sword. We know that shows you that he's talking about some enemy that's coming in, probably an army. My precious life from the power of the dog, he says, he says, I need you, basically, to deliver me. And he says, I need you to do it quickly because things are getting worse. And so, he basically says that, and in verse 21 he says, Save me from the lion's mouth and save me from the horns of the wild oxen, from the dogs, the lions, and from the bulls. And he summarizes that, and says, God, that's what I need you to do. And do it quickly, and then suddenly, right out of the blue comes this pivot point, and he says what? In the verse 21. You've answered me. Perfect tense. Just like that. Suddenly it just, I, ah, I know the answer's come. You ever just know that God's answered your prayer? Even before it happens? It's like it's already happened. Can't see it, but you know it's happened. You've been sick, you prayed, and suddenly it's happened to me a couple times. I just knew I was well. I knew I was healed, and that was it. Even before I was healed, I just knew I was healed. He says, you answered me. That's what faith is. Faith is the substance of things what? The things not. Before he sees the victory, he knows the victory is won. And from that point on, the whole psalm just turns. And now David, his mind has the victory. And he starts praising God. And he calls upon Israel to praise God along with him. So let's see how he does that. And by the way, I'm convinced that when he looks out the window... The troops are still surrounding the city when he knows God's answer. He knows he has the victory, because now God's on his side. So, with this victory, he begins to praise the Lord. Look what he says he's going to do. Future tense. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Lord, I'm just going to start praising you. I know that you've delivered me, and I'm going to praise you in the assembly. And he says... Verse 22, in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. And by the way, that phrase right there, in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you, is quoted in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 20, where the writer of Hebrews calls the assembly the church. He applies it to the church. 
Because Christ has given us the victory. Because God didn't forsake Jesus Christ. And he came to Christ's rescue, even in the nick of time, and raised him from the dead. The writer of Hebrews says, and now we will praise God in the assembly. He refers to it in that sense as the church. And then next, what he does, he calls on God's people to take action. Look at verse 23. And you who fear the Lord, that's God's people, that's what you need to do. You praise Him. All the descendants of Jacob, glorify Him and fear Him, all you offspring of Israel. So he calls the entire nation to come and begin to praise God. And here's the reason for it. Look at verse 24. For He has not despised nor abhorred the, afflicted, the affliction of the affliction. Look, why? Why should we praise Him? He has not abhorred the affliction of the affliction. I thought he had forsaken me, and he hadn't. I thought he'd forsaken our nation, and he hadn't. See? So you need to praise him because he's not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Number two, nor has he hidden his face from him. And I thought, at the beginning of the psalm, he said, you've forsaken me. He says, now I realize he hadn't forsaken me. But when he cried to him, what did he do? He heard. Look at that in verse 24. But when he cried to him, he heard. Uh, when did God hear? When he cried to him. The 15th time? Oh, the first time. You mean even before David says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Before he ever said that, he cried out to the Lord. Didn't he? But God heard him? Yeah, he heard him the first time. David realizes, hey, I had the wrong perspective. I thought God had forsaken. Now he realized, hey, the first time I heard, God, I cried out, God heard me. He hadn't forsaken me at all. In fact, when the Jews and the Hebrew children in Egypt cried out to God, did God hear them? Uh, did he hear them the first time they cried out, or did he hear them only on the last day right before the accident? He heard them the first day. But his timing is his timing, because he's holy. God hears you every time you pray. And He has the solution. He's not necessarily going to answer on your timetable, but His answer always comes on time. Because on His timetable. But let me tell you, He hears you the very first time. When Jesus prayed, Oh Lord! You know, does the Father hear Jesus? Yes. Doesn't look like he does because it looks like he's forsaken and he's put to death. But guess what happens three days later? He's raised from the dead. He's delivered from the jaws of death. And in a glorified body, even better than the original body. Then he says in verse 25, My praise shall be to you in the great assembly. When the congregation of Israel gathers, I will pay my vows before those who fear him. See? Uh, David now, as a result of realizing that God's answered, he says, I'm going to pay my vows. What does paying his vows mean? Well, look what he says in verse 26. Here's the, here's the result of paying the vows. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. When Israel became a nation, after God delivered Israel from Egypt, he formed them into a nation, and they entered into a covenant in Israel made a vow. And God said to Israel, you're not to be like the other nations that oppress poor people. That let poor people starve. Israel, you're to be an alternative society. 
You're to be a kingdom society. You're going to reflect how I'm concerned about all people. And Israel said, we will, Lord, we will. And guess what they did? They didn't do it. Very rarely did they do it. They, they were just like the other nations. They said, we want a king like the other nations. They, they, they wanted to be like the, like the other people. That's what's wrong with the church. The church wants to be like the world. We don't need to be like the world. We just need to trust God and be his kingdom. And so Israel had basically forsaken their vows, and now David says, hey, I'm going to keep my vow, and the poor people are going to be taken care of. So God expects his people to take care of the poor, to take care of their vows. That's why we bring food. When Jim was talking about, about us bringing food and helping the poor, it's not the government's job. It's God's people's job. So David says, the poor will be satisfied. Eaton will be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. And then he says this at the end of verse 27. He says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Now he, he, he sees the end, the end game, the end result. The end result is that all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations, some nations, all nations, shall worship you. That's what happens when the kingdom of God comes on earth. The kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Christ. And Christ rules the world, and all the nations come into Jerusalem and they worship him. For the kingdom is the Lord's. And he rules over Israel. Who's he ruled over? Oh, the nations. Now, I know back in one of those verses, it said God was enthroned in the praises of verse, verse 3. God was enthroned, God's the king, in the praises of who? Israel. But look in verse 25. He actually ruled over what? The nations. And the end game is that every nation, every knee would bow down and worship God. Look at this, verse 29. Here's the result. All the prosperous of the earth. All the people right now who are fat, King James says fat. That means the fat cats. What do I mean? The people who, who are pressing the poor. Uh, the people who are uh, uh, self-sufficient now and don't think they need God. Uh, there's going to come a day when even those people are going to fall down and eat. And when they do, they will be worshiping the Lord. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. That means those who died one day are going to bow before him. How can a person who's died bow down before him in his kingdom? He must be talking about a resurrection. Even those who cannot keep himself alive, even people are going to die in the future, they're going to do this. Verse 30. A posterity shall serve him. This is going to be God's going to have people serve him forever. And it shall be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. Remember that time that God... Delivered David. We're going to be talking about this from generation to generation. Hey, is that what the Passover feast was all about? Remember God delivered Israel from Egypt? He said, I want you to have a Passover feast every year so you will remember that I delivered you from Egypt. And guess what else? We have something called the Lord's Supper, don't we? And what do we remember? That God delivered us from this world through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this posterity will serve in verse 30. It will be recounted 
of the Lord from, to the next generation, and they will come and declare his righteous to the people who will be born. Hey, that's what I'm doing. That may be time. Talk to my grandkids about the Lord. Don't I? Even the next generation that hasn't been born will be hearing this testimony, David says, of how God has stood in and delivered us from our enemies. And then in verse 31, he says this. That he, that he has done this. It's all God's doing. That he has done this. God gets all the credit. Now look how that psalm opened up. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And how does it close? God delivered me. Boy, it opens on the bleak note and ends on a bright note. And as Jesus is hanging on the cross, his mind goes back, and for some reason, this is the psalm that he starts reflecting on. And he sees himself as the new king of Israel, David. And no matter how bad things look, and even though Rome, this great mighty empire, is ready to take his life, he puts his hands, his life in the hands of God, and he knows in the end that God will be living. Next week we come to the 23rd Psalm. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, and we can look at it in its historical context, and we can see how it has great meaning for us, and the words of Christ on the cross uh, become even richer once we have this background. So, Lord, thank you for this psalm and help us to learn its lessons. Help us, Lord, to be people who don't think that you've forsaken us. Help us to be people that trust you from beginning to the end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.